Amen. Well, for Advent, this season, we're working through the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet. If you've got a Bible, turn to the very end of the Old Testament. If you're using one of our few Bibles, it's page 753. And we're here because Malachi is God's final instructions before the first Christmas. This is the final book before Advent. It's the last book before God goes silent for 400 years. And as we've already seen, and as we will continue to see, Malachi is going to get in our grill. He's going to show us our need. He's going to show us how we ought to prepare to change our heart and to change our lives before the coming of the Lord. God takes his glory seriously. He takes the glory of his name seriously, and he wants his people to do the same. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 6, he's the father, he is the master, he is to be honored. We saw in chapter 1, verse 11 and verse 14 that one day all the nations will do just that. His name will be great among the nations. Remember the historical context here in Malachi. The people of God had been in exile because of their sin, but now they've been released due to Cyrus. So they're back in their land. The temple had been rebuilt. Things should be awesome. They're not. They're not committed to the Lord. And we see that in Malachi. I mentioned that there are six disputations back and forth in the book. We saw two last week. Let's look at two points this morning from chapter two, Malachi chapter two. Number one, polluted leadership. And number two, polluted family life. So first, polluted leadership here in these first nine verses of chapter two. John Maxwell often says that everything rises or falls with leadership. One of the things we'll do in membership class is I'll often ask the membership class, hey, tell me some stories, don't name names, but tell me some stories where you've seen churches go wrong. And 99% of the time, it has to do with leadership. Well, Israel's leaders here had gone sour. Look at chapter two, verse one. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. God rebukes the priests, these leaders, for not honoring his name. He's going to curse them. Indeed, they're already cursed, probably alluding to those terrible nightmare-inducing curses of the covenant we see in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. We don't have time to go there, but sometime read those and see the dreadful consequences of the judgment of God for his people abandoning him. And he says he will bring the curse. He will curse their blessings. I think this is actually a terrible reversal. Remember in number six of that blessing that God gives to the priests. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. Well, these folks have been idolatrous and rebelled. And so now the Lord says, you're cursed. Look at verse three. This verse is quite shocking. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Merry Christmas. God's not messing around. He's angry. He's going to spread animal waste on the faces of the leaders of his people. 
And that is a word actually referred to sort of the un, undigested dung and guts of an animal that should have, according to the law, should have been removed and taken out of the camp and burned, lest the community be unclean. Numbers 19 says that the priest was to burn it. He was then to wash his clothes. He was then to bathe. And then he could return to camp. And even then he would still be considered unclean until evening. So if the priest, the priest even touched this stuff, he's DQ'd for ministry. He's done. And here God said he's going to wipe it on their face. Scandalous. God is tired of their unfaithfulness tired of their unfaithful worship, tired of their unfaithful sacrifices, tired of their unfaithful leadership. Look at verse four. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me, he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. He was a good leader. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He mentions this covenant with Levi, I think referring to the instructions to the Levites, to the priesthood that we find in Deuteronomy 33. And notice what he says his point was, it was life, it was peace. That was his aim, the good life here in life eternal forever. And the priests were to fear the Lord. And remember to fear the Lord is to fear displeasing the Lord. Chapter one, verse six and 14, we saw God rebuked them for their sacrifices, their half-hearted devotion. And how, here he's rebuking them for their failure to teach the law and their failure to walk in the law, to be an example. The job of the priest was to walk in uprightness and guard the knowledge of the law. But these leaders, these priests were failing on both accounts. What does it mean for us? Well, we're not in the old covenant. We're now in the new covenant. And so we don't have a priesthood. We're all priests if you're a Christian. I'm not a priest. This is not a sanctuary. Sanctuary means holy place. There's nothing holy about this building until we get in here. This is not an altar. There's nothing special about this place. We're just a group of people here. But God does still design the church to be led by people, to have leadership. In fact, he's very vocal about it. There's three whole books in our Bible about, about church leadership, church government. We call them the pastorals, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And I just want to say, while I have the opportunity, how thankful I am for the leadership of this church whether it be deacons or elders or ministers or lay leaders of various sort, I'm so thankful. I mean, I am extremely thankful. It is, it is rare, sadly, to have a team like we have. And really for one main reason, it's not because they're gifted or dynamic. I mean, they are that in some ways. What I'm really thankful for though, is not their gifts, but their character. Our leaders love the Lord. Our leaders desire is that Jesus Christ be exalted in their own life and then in your life. And so praise God, he's been kind to us here at Southside. Leaders must be characterized by true instruction, he says, by godly lives. They must preach the whole counsel of God. They must be above reproach. The life must match the words. And you'll read, if you notice, those, those pastoral epistles, what are we looking for in leaders? Again, it's not about skill. It's not being about a catalytic leader or a great communicator, an innovator, funny, dynamic. No, they're all about character. They're about holiness. Elders are be men to be men who love the Lord. In fact, I want to read 
just one section of those qualifications from Titus 1. Verse 5, and notice what we're looking for here. This is why, Paul says, this is why I've left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. God cares about the order of his church. And what is he to do? He is to appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. What kind of elders? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, by the way, just footnote, we're talking about the qualification for elders, but then he just flips terminology and calls them overseers because in the Bible, an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. It's three titles for the same office. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplines. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, there's that word, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's what God desires for his church. But back here in the old covenant, these leaders were corrupt. They were the opposite of these things. Look back at Malachi 2 verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. They're causing the people to stumble. It's the worst thing a Christian leader can do. That's why James 3 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. God takes the leadership of his church seriously. Yet they're causing people to stumble. Listen to Jesus' words in Mark 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones, when he's not talking about children merely here, he's talking about new believers. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What does Jesus think about unfaithful leadership? He tells them that it's better to die by having your lungs filled with water than to face the judgment of God. He takes leadership extremely seriously. Do not lead his people astray. Teach the whole council. Be faithful in your lives. With all the compromise we're seeing in this city and in the world about human sexuality and the way the Bible's being distorted, it just sends shivers down my spine. And these priests were corrupt. They were compromising. They needed a faithful priest. One who would offer wholehearted worship to the Father. One who would say, not my will, but yours. One who offers not some blind, lame, or deaf sacrifice, but a perfect sacrifice. Not the blood of bulls and goats, since they can't take away sin, but the offering of himself. That's what Hebrews 10 says. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ 
had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A priest who's faithful to the word of God, who is the word of God, embodies the word of God. Jesus Christ, our high priest. So first he addresses polluted leadership. And then second, he addresses their polluted family life in verses 10 to 16. First, ungodly marriages. They were marrying unbelieving spouses. They were marrying pagan spouses. This is the same thing that was happening in in Nehemiah chapter 13. And the law clearly prohibited intermarriage between Israelites And pagans, it had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with religion. Notice how the law puts it, Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. No compromise here, no mingling. Destroy their idols. But instead here, they're disregarding the clear word of the Lord. That that teaching is all over the law. But notice what they're doing in Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How are they doing this? How is that abomination? What's the profaning? What is the faithless? Has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He says, I won't even receive their worship. He starts there in verse 10. There's one father. There's one true God. He is the creator. He knows best. He has the right to define marriage. But they've been faithless and profaned his name, committing an abomination by marrying unbelievers. God is serious about his name. He's serious about commitment to him. He does not share his glory. So the people of God were only to marry other people devoted to the one true God. Same for us. No missionary dating allowed. No flirt to convert. It rarely works. It often ends in ruin. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ is your Lord. Jesus Christ is your passion. He's your North Star. You're called to do everything you do, even eating and drinking for his glory. And the Bible teaches that there's this great antithesis between unbelievers and believers. One is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3. One is the seed of the serpent, 2 Corinthians 4, one is blinded by the God of this age. Another has been enlightened by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, one is following the prince of the power of the air. The other following the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They are, they had, there are entirely different worldviews between believers and unbelievers, entirely different views of the world. We view everything different. We look at money and one looks at it one way, another looks at it another way. We look at time differently. We look at children differently. Look at the local church differently. Obviously we have a whole different view of the purpose of life. So how could we marry someone? that's on the opposite end. Marriage is so much more than just a physical union, right? So much more than just someone we sit by the fireplace with, so much more than just someone we watch Netflix with. Marriage is a spiritual union with a shared goal of seeing God honored, seeing his church built up, sharing struggles, praying together. So how could you even, friends, don't even date someone who's not a believer, young people. I question the wisdom of dating, period, if it's not very close leading to marriage. But dating a non-Christian is not just unwise, it's disobedience. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It's just not an option. In 1 Corinthians 7, it's a chapter about divorce and remarriage. And it talks about those who are being free to remarry, being remarried, quote, only in the Lord. Christians marry Christians. So one, ungodly marriages, he rebukes them for. And then second, their faithlessness is being shown through divorce. Look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it, accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirits and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So notice they begin chapter one, they doubt the love of God. Chapter one, verse two to five. We see that their worship is half-hearted. Their leadership is corrupt. Their worship is impure, which leads to the breakdown of the family. You see, when we don't have a correct view of God, we will not view the family correctly. I mean, just look around. All of us are touched by divorce. So what does this mean for us, friends? Let me first say that I think there are a couple grounds for a biblical divorce. I think first we need to say that God's will is never divorce. God's will is always reconciliation. That's the first blanket statement we need to say. Now, having said that, I do think there are three rare exceptions where divorce can be permissible. Number one, Romans chapter seven says that if a spouse dies, the living spouse is free to remarry. Now, if you took him out, that doesn't count. That's Romans 7. Number two, 
is 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us, well, let me, let me start with, yeah, number one, Romans 7, if a spouse dies, free. The second area, and we don't have time to go there, but you can jot these down. 1 Corinthians 7 says that a spouse is free to divorce and remarry under this circumstance. If they are believers and they're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever wants out. He talks in there about being married to an unbeliever and if the unbeliever will stay, stay because the house is gonna be sanctified in that sense. They're gonna hear the gospel and who knows, they might be saved. But if they're an unbeliever and they want out, he says you're free to let them go and then I believe then no longer bound, you're free to remarry. I realize this can get challenging in a place like Abilene where everybody professes to be a believer. That's what we're going to ask. Is there any fruit? And let me just say, if a man continually without repentance and without seeking counsel and without an openness for help abuses his wife, he's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what he might profess with his mouth. Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. So if there's a man who will not repent, will not seek help, then there's no reason to believe he's a genuine believer and she needs to get out and she's free if there's no progress in, in counseling. So that's second. Desertion abandoned by an unbeliever. Number three, the third reason that divorce could be biblically permissible not required, but could be permissible is when a spouse is unfaithful sexually. We see this in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. There he's speaking about the permanence of marriage and they both have these exception clauses, except on the ground of sexual immorality. And so there are times where that can cause a break, cause can break the marriage covenant and the offended spouse could be free to divorce and therefore I think free to remarry. These matters are debated. In fact, many of you know the previous senior pastor held a different view than I hold, but I think that's what scripture teaches. These three rare exceptions that divorce can be biblically permissible and therefore remarriage. Now listen, that's it. I think the vast majority of divorces, even in the church, do not fit these exceptions biblically. And so let me say a, a word here to, to those who've been divorced few things. First, if you haven't already, acknowledge that it's sin. A mark of Christian maturity is being able to own our own shortcomings and own our sin and repent of it. Call it a spade a spade. That's the first mark is we've got to be real with what the Bible teaches. Second thing though is right after that, again, if you haven't already, flee to Christ. Jesus saves sinners of which we are all sinners. We're justified by faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ gives us a right standing. Your standing with God is not based upon your marital fidelity or lack thereof. Your standing with God is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to your account. If you've done that, there's no condemnation. There's grace for sinners again, which is all of us. And then another mark of maturity is finding your identity in him. Finding your identity in Jesus Christ. You're not defined by you. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your divorce. You're defined by Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been, I, the old me, been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. 
So if you're in Christ, God has forgiven you. Forgive yourself. Don't let the enemy let that hang over you. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sins. Now, let me speak to those who are married or remarried or want to be married at some point. Divorce should not be a Christian option. Couples just should resolve to not even use the D word. And here we've just got to be honest. The church has dropped the ball. Divorce is just the norm today. Didn't used to be. It is today, really starting in 1969, Ronald Reagan, first no-fault divorce laws. Now it's just the norm. We've seen the family crumble. And therefore, the state. Divorce is no longer shocking to us. Even in the church, we've grown accustomed to it. Because often pastors and churches lack courage and lack a culture of accountability and discipline and discipleship. And it doesn't shock us. It's no longer a scandal when there's a line from Protestant baptistries to the local divorce court. Rather than being countercultural, Unlike the world, we've just accommodated to where we blend right in. It's given us a credibility crisis. Back in 2010, I found this article. It was by a professor at the University of Washington. I don't think he's a believer. He teaches political science. And he was observing the, you know, a few generations ago, the religious right, the moral majority. And he was just watching and he was seeing that there were a couple things. The family was a big piece legislatively. And they would often talk about two things, abortion and homosexuality. And he began to ask questions. Why are not they doing the same thing about divorce? Study the Bible, saw that the biblical teaching on divorce is just as clear, if not clear, than the biblical teaching on abortion and same-sex marriage. I think it's clear on all three, but he's asking, why, why is that missing? It's missing in the culture war. And he came to the conclusion, leaders need followers. And if these politicians and pastors take a hardline stance or a biblical stance against divorce, they're going to alienate half their constituency. They might stop giving. It's true of politicians. It's true of pastors. Because listen, friends, it's not easy for me to preach. Sermons like this don't grow churches, at least numerically. I think they actually do grow churches but not numerically. Sermons like this will get many pastors fired. It's amazing what pastors will say or won't say when their popular appeal or when their paycheck depends on it. Listen to how this secular thinker concludes this article. These groups, these religious right, moral majority groups have occasionally raised the issue of divorce, but have never made it a prominent part of their political agenda. Their leaders seem to recognize how much a strong push to limit divorce would alienate their own members and supporters. For this reason, the status of divorce as missing in the culture war does not appear likely to change anytime soon. We've accommodated. Another sociologist from UVA says this, a different article, similar concept. It may well be that leaders and pastors are more comfortable confronting homosexuality. I could add abortion which probably does not affect many people in their pews than confronting divorce, which does. What does Malachi 2.9 say about this leadership there at the end? Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. 
We've got to speak clearly where the Bible speaks clearly. Divorce is not God's will. It destroys family. It hurts kids. It's the leading cause of widows and orphans in our midst. It makes an absolute mess. And most importantly, it dishonors God. So if you're married, if you're remarried, or if you're considering marriage, it's just not an option. Notice the ways God speaks of marriage here. Just in this passage, look at verse 14, chapter 2. But you say... Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So first notice, I want to mention eight things about marriage here. We see first notice, God was witness. God was witness. I think we tend to forget the point of a marriage ceremony. Love marriage ceremonies and hate marriage ceremonies. Marriage ceremonies are not about the couple. I'm sorry, ladies, the marriage ceremony is not about the bride. The marriage ceremony is about a public commitment before God. He was the primary guest at your wedding ceremony. And the people, ideally, your local church and your family are here to watch you make those vows before God and commit to pray and help you in your marriage. You made vows to God. He was witness. Did you say, I do? Then do. Keep your vows in good times and in bad times, in better and worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Number two, he says that she's the wife of your youth. Remember Remember how you cared for her. Remember how you felt for her at first. I'm always amazed in my office, the different postures between premarital and marriage crisis. Especially when there's unfaithfulness. I'm saying, remember those things you're feeling now, you felt for her, remember. And don't be driven by your feelings. Terrible leaders, good followers. Remember who she is. Remember why you Love her. Remember why you married her. She's the wife of youth. Number three, she's your companion. She's your partner. She's your ride or die. Develop that relationship. We tend to treat marriages like trees. We, you know, we, we spend a lot of time. We, we stake them off. We put a fence around. We care for them. When they get established, we just leave them alone. That's why we treat marriages. Continue to develop your marriage. Your companion. Men tend to pursue a girl, get the girl, and stop. But marriage is when the pursuit really begins. Guys, date your wives. Pursue her. Study her. She's your companion. And make her your main companion. Parents, do not be a child-centered home. Be a marriage-centered home. Because one day, some of you know, sooner than later, there's just going to be two plates at the end of that table. She's your companion. Number four, she says she's your wife by covenant. Marriage is not a contract. It's not this. Now, I'll hold up my part of the deal so long as you hold up your part of the deal. But if not, I'm out. You broke the contract. No, marriage is a covenant before God. Number five, God is the one who makes marriages. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who loves, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, 
says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. God is the one who makes marriages. Jesus says in Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, this is Genesis 2.24, Jesus quotes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In marriage, God is the one who does the joining. He's the one who makes marriage. This is about him. Marriage is not first and foremost about you. Marriage is not first and foremost about your happiness. Marriage is first and foremost about him. It's about honoring God and your holiness. And it's hard. Good marriages are hard. You see, marriages that are thriving, it's because of blood, sweat, tears, confession, and repentance. It's the school of sanctification. Rids people of their self-centeredness. Marriage doesn't go well for self-centered people. Contrary to Hollywood and chick flicks and rom-coms, you don't fall in love. Biblically, you commit to love. That's why we do vows. No one falls out of love. They fall out of repentance. You don't lose passion for one another. You lose passion for God. Number six, the goal of Christian marriage is godly offspring. Verse 16 says that through marriage, God is seeking godly offspring. Marriage is for kids, Genesis 1. And the primary way that Jesus builds his church is through the family. It's through Christian parents passing on the faith to their children, discipling their kids. Number seven, marriage is to be guarded, he says. He says, watch yourself. Guard it. You are to be faithful, not faithless. And I know the tone of this passage and therefore the tone of this sermon, it's solemn. This is a warning. But we need to remind ourselves that God's warnings against sin are always invitations to the good life. Every command is an invitation to life and peace, as we saw. That was his intention. His intention is to guard a happy and whole and fruitful community under the care of God so that people would be protected from becoming vulnerable, whether it be financially or socially or spiritually or emotionally, guard your marriage. I was at a Gary Thomas seminar a few years ago. Gary Thomas wrote a sacred marriage, the subtitle of what if marriage is about your holiness, not your happiness. And towards the end, he said there was a study done and, and there are two main activities that will keep marriages together. Guys, you're going to find one of these really easy and the other really hard. Two things that if marriages will regularly have physical intimacy. All the men said amen. Second thing, if couples, marriages will have regular prayer together. And so maybe if you don't take anything else from this sermon, I'm editing in my head right now. <laughs> we'll just skip to the second. If you take nothing else from this sermon, begin to pray together. Hope intimacy is happening. Let me tell you to pray together. Men, husbands, look at me real clearly. If you're not praying every day with your wife, today's the day to start. Today's the day to start. Say, I don't know how. Here's what you can do. 
Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe it's the last thing you do before you go to bed. You grab her hand and say, let's pray. If you've never done it before, will it be uncomfortable? You bet. Will it be awkward? Yeah. Will it be a, a killer prayer? Probably not. Here's what you can do. God would give you the glory for today. Maybe something went well. Thank you for A. Maybe something went bad. Lord, would you work through this? Maybe something's ahead. Maybe something's the next day. God, would you help us as we work through A, B, C, and D? If you have kids, God, would you save our kids? Would you save their future spouses? Would you be sanctifying their future spouses? Whatever. Thank you for today. Help us for tomorrow. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It can start that simple. Husbands, start tonight. And it becomes the norm every day pray with your wife. Guard your marriage. Eighth, doesn't mention in this passage, but marriage is ultimately about the gospel. Ephesians 5.32 tells us that the very point of the institution of marriage was about Christ and the church. This is fascinating. The very point in Genesis chapter two of God creating a man and a woman in the institution of marriage, we find out later the whole point of that thing was that it might point to Christ and the church. Marriages preach the gospel. That's why God hates divorce. It tells a lie about the gospel, tells a lie about Christ and his church. And so we preach the gospel through kept wedding vows. And healthy marriages. We're to be different. The church is to be a contrast society, a colony of the kingdom, a countercultural people, an outpost. Nine years ago, at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, what will happen is there'll often be resolutions passed. And basically, it's statements that we as a whole convention, a whole denomination, 40,000 churches, can get behind and say, as a Southern Baptist school, we stand behind these. And, and nine years ago, there was this resolution passed. It's very long. We'll have it on the screens. I felt like it was worth reading in entirety. Something that we can get behind. The title was on the Southern Baptist scandal of divorce. Whereas the Bible reveals that marriage is a gospel mystery pointing to Christ's union with his church. And whereas the Bible teaches that marriage was established by God in the beginning to be a permanent one flesh union. And whereas our Lord Jesus commands us that what God has joined together, let not man separate. And whereas the biblical story shows us that one of the lamentable aspects of sin is the destruction of marriages and families, a destruction seen from the fall until this present darkness. Let me put a footnote. One of the reasons Satan hates godly marriages is because it's such a picture of the gospel. He wants it destroyed. And whereas the rampant divorce rate in our culture has come with great social and economic costs, with women and children suffering disproportionately in ways that are incalculable. And whereas we've affirmed in our confession of faith, our belief in the sanctity and permanence of marriage, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and whereas some studies have indicated that conservative Protestants in the United States of America are divorcing at the same rate, if not at higher rates, than the general population. And whereas some studies also indicate that areas where Southern Baptist churches predominate in number often have higher divorce rates than areas we would define as unchurched and in need of evangelical witness. And whereas even the most expansive view of the biblical exceptions allowing for divorce and remarriage would rule out, would rule out many, if not most of the divorces in our churches. 
And whereas the acceleration in racial divorce in Southern Baptist churches has not come through a shift in theological conviction about scriptural teaching on divorce, but rather through cultural accommodation, and whereas we've been prophetic in confronting assaults in the, confronting assaults in the outside culture on God's design for marriage, while rarely speaking with the same alarm and force to a scandal that has become all too commonplace in our churches. And whereas we do not serve those who are hurting from divorce by speaking to them only in therapeutic terms rather than in terms of both repentance and forgiveness. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the messengers of the SBC meeting in Orlando acknowledge the complicity of many among us for far too often failing to show the world the meaning of the gospel through marital fidelity. Be it further resolved that we express our conviction that a denomination defined theologically by our belief in the authority and inerrancy of Holy Scripture ought to proclaim the whole counsel of God, especially when the Bible confronts our own, sin, own patterns of sin. And be it further resolved that we express our further conviction that a denomination defined missiologically ought to recognize how damaging Southern Baptist accommodation to the divorce culture is to our global witness for Christ. Be it further resolved that we express our further conviction that a denomination seeking God's blessing and revival and reformation ought to address the spiritual wreckage left in our Southern Baptist churches by our own divorce rates and our silence about the same. Be it further resolved that we call on our churches to proclaim the word of God on the permanence of marriage and to provide ongoing marriage enrichment opportunities in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's abhorrence of divorce. And be it further resolved that we call on our churches to unite in marriage only those who are biblically qualified to be married to one another and who demonstrate an understanding of the meaning of lifelong love and fidelity. And be it further resolved that we call on our churches and our wedding services to maintain the gravity of the vows being undertaken, not simply as a token of the couple's romance, but as a covenant before God until death do them part. Be it further resolved that we call on our churches to minister to couples and families in crisis through counseling, mentorship, and where necessary through biblical church discipline. Be it further resolved that we call on our churches to proclaim God's mercy and grace to all people, including those who've been divorced without biblical grounds due to the truth that the blood of Jesus can atone for any sin and can cleanse any conscience. And be it further resolved that we call on our churches to have special compassion for and energetic ministry to those who've been left in the wake of family brokenness. And be it further resolved that we urge all Southern Baptists in troubled or faltering marriages to seek godly assistance and where possible reconciliation. And be it finally resolved that we pray that the true peace of our Lord Jesus Christ will reign in us such that the next generation will see the gospel, not only in the countercultural nature of our verbal witness, but also in the countercultural love and fidelity of our marriages. May God give us grace to be a church led by faithful leaders with marriages centered on Jesus Christ.